I would invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. And we'll be looking at uh, verse 11 through the end of the chapter this morning. Let's pray to the Lord before reading his word together. Father, we thank you for the great privilege that it is to open up your word week after week. May we see in this text this day our need for the Lord Jesus, our calling as a pilgrim people, um, sojourning through this life into that which is to come. May you enable us by your goodness and grace to fix our eyes ever upon our risen Savior, our need for him, and our heavenly home that awaits us in his name. We pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, a few weeks ago, you might remember that we considered the opening section of the book of Exodus. And we looked at the way in which God works so marvelously, so masterfully in all of the details of history. Works behind the scenes, if you will, bringing about His purposes. And we talked then about the importance of developing a theology in the Christian life that sees the sovereign Lord, sees the one who is in control of absolutely everything in our lives, no matter how seemingly insignificant those things might be to us. And this absolute sovereign control may not always be evident the way in which we want it to be, the way that which we expect. It may not be according to our timing, but as God's word tells us, his ways are not our ways. And the calling placed upon us as his people is to trust, to submit, and to believe in this important truth. To trust that because he is our heavenly father, he knows what he is doing in the lives of his children. To submit 
to recognize that his authority over us is a loving, fatherly, divine authority. To believe, to believe that our God knows exactly what he is doing. Now we continue to see this important theological truth of God's sovereign rule over all in these verses this morning in which we learn a great deal about God's provision of a leader to redeem his people from captivity. And in the life of Moses, we are meant to look ahead. In all of these narratives throughout this portion of Scripture, we are meant to look ahead beyond what these texts teach us, not only about Moses himself, but the greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus, the one who comes to redeem his people. The one who redeems them not provisionally, but eternally and permanently from sin and from captivity. And so as we consider the one appointed by God to deliver his people, first this morning there is his public appearance, the public appearance of Moses. In verse 11, Moses moves from what we could say obscurity, from being inconspicuous in the court of Pharaoh to being a public figure. Now, it's not the most flattering of events, is it, that thrusts Moses from this obscure sort of behind-the-scenes position to a public figure. You'll recall the background of Moses, the things that led him to this point in his life. It was his mother who, by faith, entrusted her infant child at three months of age to the Lord by placing him in that basket that she constructed from the reeds more literally an ark, to preserve him from the troubles of the waters of the Nile, a vessel of preservation. And she took him and she hid him there among the bulrushes. And it was the daughter of Pharaoh who saved him from death. When he was a young boy, he comes to live in the household of Egypt and is considered an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, as part of his education and training, Moses would have been instructed and skilled in all of the areas uh, that would have been offered in terms of education from this mighty land of Egypt, from mathematics to astronomy to matters of diplomacy and more. And it was this training that was used by the Lord to develop Moses into the leader that he was to become. And we read earlier from Acts chapter 7, a passage which gives us additional insight into our text this morning from Exodus chapter 2. Again, from Acts 7 verses 21 and 22. And when he, Moses, was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds." And so we see the results of this Egyptian education upon him. Moses was one who was powerful in speech, powerful in action. This training that he had received within the household of Pharaoh is evident early on when he comes here in verses 11 and 12 among his people, seeking to intervene, seeking to alleviate them from their hardship and misery. And we'll see this more in a moment But we could think of this as worldly and yet valuable skills that need to be honed by character development, a period that comes later in Moses' life. So while Moses is in the household of Pharaoh receiving this education and training, it's important to keep in mind that he was fully aware of his identity as a Hebrew, 
if you have in your mind the notion that Moses thought he was an Egyptian, that he was somehow deluded into thinking that he was the biological son of Pharaoh's daughter, it's clear from Exodus 2, and it's clear from the other New Testament passage that we read this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, that he was fully aware of his identity as a Hebrew. He clearly understood by faith during these years of training that he was to be used by God. So that's Moses' background. That's the training that has been going on in his life for the last 40 years. Now, 40 years is a long time for training. If you were in school for 40 years, your parents would appropriately have high expectations of you. (laughs) And so here in verse 11, we encounter this decisive act that moves Moses from the shadows, again, into public from simply being a member of the court of Pharaoh to being known. One day he comes out among his people. He looks upon their burdens. He identifies with them. He sees an Egyptian striking a Hebrew. He looks this way and that, not to see if there is someone there who can intervene and help this one who's being oppressed, but to make sure that there is no one there who sees what he is about to do. And so he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. And I think it's natural for us to ask the question at this point, what was Moses hoping to accomplish? Was he just out for a regular, leisurely stroll among the slaves of the land and was controlled by an emotional fit of rage leading to murder? Was it simply a hot-headed response to a cruel act? Well, here's where our New Testament texts help us again. Acts 7, verse 25, he strikes down the Egyptians and he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. He believes that this is the moment to act. He presumes that his people will recognize him as the divinely appointed leader. He sees this as the opportunity presented to him by God himself. And then in Hebrews 11, in verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so as we take these three texts of Scripture and we hold them in balance, notice that Moses completely understands what he is doing when he strikes this Egyptian. He is making a conscious decision at this point in time to cut himself off from the pleasures of Egypt in order to identify himself with his own people. He knows that there is no going back. He understands that this is a decisive moment. And it's this sight on something greater as the writer of Hebrews says, this sight on something eternal in nature that motivates him to leave behind the treasures of Egypt and look to the promises of God. And so this is not an impetuous act on Moses' part, but undoubtedly he saw the last 40 years of his life as training, perhaps even training for this one moment, this one opportunity to act. By faith, he believes that he is divinely appointed for this task. And this is not a naive faith. This is not a blind faith. Because it's 
faith that is commended by the writer of Hebrews. So where did this faith come from? Where did this faith of Moses originate, this faith that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? Well, it's a faith that originates with God and His purposes of divine election. Back in Exodus 2, verse 2, that we read a number of weeks ago, we read there that when Moses' mother looked upon her infant child, she saw that he was a fine or a beautiful child. Now, I don't believe that we are meant to think of Moses as somehow physically different from all the other children of the land. When his mother looks upon him and sees that he is a fine child, it's not because she has in mind that this baby is going to win all of the baby beauty pageants of the land. She doesn't look at him and see that, oh, he's in the 90th percentile for height and weight. But rather, it's through the eyes of faith that his mother sees that he is special. Something much more is going on than external appearances. What she sees is that this one is being set apart to be the one to deliver the people of God for this particular task. Again, Acts 7, verse 20 that we read, Moses is spoken of as being beautiful in God's sight, chosen by God to be mediator, chosen by the Lord to deliver his people, chosen from infancy for this particular task. And he is beautiful within the sight of God, not because of something inherent within him, but because of his divine election. Moses is a recipient of God's grace. And it is God's grace upon him for this special purpose that makes him unique. So when the book of Hebrews tells us that Moses had faith, we are to understand that this faith present in his life is there because of God's divine election. God chose him for this task, and it was evident by faith, the faith in Moses' life, that he understood this. So that was Moses' preparation for and beginning of his public ministry, moving from obscurity into public ministry, if you will. And that leads us to our second point this morning, the rejection of Moses by Israel, the rejection of God's deliverer. And so he thinks of this as his moment to move from training into action. He strikes the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. The next day he goes out among his people and sees two Israelites quarreling, perhaps embroiled in a physical altercation, and he seeks to intervene, tries to mediate between the two of them in an authoritative manner. And look how they reply in verse 14. Who made you prince and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? This is where Moses' expectations that they would embrace him as a deliverer are instantly and immediately demolished. There's no appreciation that he might be doing something for their benefit. It's just an irritation to them. No willingness to respond, no eyes of faith to see him as one sent by God. Nelson Klusterman points out that this is an appeal to the genetic fallacy. You are one of us. How could you be a deliverer? We don't know who you are. We don't know where you came from. What makes you think that you are better than us? Who made you the boss over me? 
And isn't this the same rejection that Jesus himself received when he went to his hometown to minister? In fact, when he went to his own people to minister. In the life of Jesus, he moves from obscurity into public ministry, just as Moses. But when he returns to his own brothers and those who knew him as a child, they respond, how could you be the Messiah? We know you. How could you be over us? How could you possibly be one who has come in authority? Who do you think you are? And so they reject this divinely appointed leader. They reject him as mediator between God and man. Now at first you might be a bit sympathetic towards these two Israelites who reject him. After all, he killed an Egyptian. Isn't he just being overzealous? Is he simply trying to force God's hand? Trying to force the people to recognize him as a deliverer? See, if you go back to Genesis and you start in chapter 12, you will read that God chose Abraham. Of all of the people who lived on the face of the earth, he chose Abraham to be a recipient of his covenant blessings. And from Abraham comes Isaac. From Isaac comes Jacob, who is renamed Israel. And from Israel come the twelve sons, the twelve patriarchs, to which all the children of Israel are born. But when those twelve die, there is no one individual to take leadership over them. The people just explode numerically. We read that in Exodus chapter 1. God blesses them. And yet for hundreds of years, there is no divinely appointed leader. There is no one whom God raises up. It's a period of great silence until now, until Moses, and he is rejected. And the reason that Stephen in Acts chapter 7 spends all of this time in this lengthy speech before the high priest talking about this event from Exodus is to remind his fellow Israelites how they treated Moses in order to help them understand that they are a hard-hearted people who from the very beginning, from the first one that God sent to be a deliverer, they rejected him. And then they went on to reject prophet after prophet after prophet, unless that prophet happened to tell them what they wanted to hear, rejected over and over again until finally they rejected the ultimate and final deliverer. After a lengthy period of silence, the Lord again brings a deliverer to them and they reject him as well. The people didn't want Moses. The people didn't want the prophets. The people didn't want Jesus. And by our very natures, fallen in sin, we don't want him either. You see, as Stephen recounts this history in Acts chapter 7, it's a history that we are meant to see as our history. That their rejection of God's mediator is our rejection of that mediator. This is why at the end of Stephen's speech, they stone him to death. Here's the mindset of the children of Israel. Here's our own mindset as fallen sinners. Who appointed you? We didn't ask for this. We're fine in slavery. We're fine living for our own desires. Living in blindness, in foolishness, in self-interest. We're fine going through this life determining for ourselves how to live and what we really need. How dare you come among us and try to help us? 
How dare you lay aside the riches of Pharaoh's palace and try to help us? How dare you, eternal Son of God, lay aside the riches of heaven and come into our world and tell us that we must look to you for deliverance? How dare you call us to faith and repentance? So this is not just an individual rejection of Moses as deliverer. This is a prideful people rejecting the means of God's provision for salvation. And so by faith, Moses comes to his own to deliver, and yet he is rejected by his own. They want nothing to do with him. Our Savior left the riches of his heavenly throne room. We read in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he left the glories of that heavenly place to come into this world and to take poverty upon himself to save lost sinners. We read in John 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Someone has put it like this. At no point in human history have people actively looked for a deliverer. The storyline of the Bible is that the church kills her own Savior. Jesus is not killed in Egypt or Babylon, but in Jerusalem by his own. And the seed of arrogance and rebellion lies within the hearts of each one of us. And without his grace, we would be Christ killers rather than Christ worshipers. So now that the deliverer of God's people is rejected, what's going to happen next? This leads us thirdly to Moses living in Midian. Now, humanly speaking, Moses has completely wasted his life, hasn't he? Squandered a great opportunity, trained for 40 years to take all of that training and simply wash it away. He has made the move to identify with his people, and now there's no going back to Egypt His people have rejected him. The Pharaoh wants to kill him, and his only option is to flee. Well, so why does Moses flee to Midian? Well, very simply, it's outside of the boundaries of Egypt. The Midianites are a nomadic people traveling with their flocks wherever there might be seasonal vegetation. And so we're not sure exactly where Moses goes at this point in his life other than east of Egypt and south of Canaan somewhere in present-day Saudi Arabia. Now, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham when Abraham took Keturah as his wife after Sarah died. We read of that in Genesis chapter 25. And although the Midianites were descendants of Abraham and therefore distant relatives of the Israelites, not all of them would have been faithful worshipers of the Lord. But here, when Moses comes to Midian, he comes across this one before we even know his name, who was identified as a priest of Midian. Then later we learn that his name is Ruel. Later he's called Jethro. Some scholars ascribe another name to him as well, Hobab. One commentator says there's more confusion over his name than the fact that he's a priest. And since Ruel means friend of God, we are led to believe that this priest, as he's first introduced to us in verse 16, is a worshiper of the Lord. And so Moses has found, by God's leading, a worshiping community. And what does he do when he arrives in this new land? Well, the first thing that he does is he goes to the well. 
which would be the center of any community life within a desert area. And this reminds us of Genesis chapter 28, where the servant of Abraham goes to find a wife for Isaac, and he finds Rebekah at the well, and she comes and waters his camels. Or Genesis chapter 29, when Jacob meets Rachel at the well, as she is there watering her father's flock. And Moses is sitting here at the well, and he sees these seven ladies come to draw water for their flocks. Some other shepherds come onto the scene, waiting for the women to do all of the work, filling the troughs with water. And then the men drive them away so that they can reap the benefits of all of their work. Moses sees this injustice and then intervenes. Those who have been bullying the women, they back down as soon as Moses confronts them. We read in verse 17 that Moses saves them, that he brings rescue, deliverance, salvation to those in need, standing for those who cannot defend themselves. He becomes their redeemer as he is used by God, and he goes on to serve them by watering their flocks. And notice he's treated better by these non-Israelites than he is his own people. He's well-received and welcomed. He was rejected by his own. His own would not receive him, and yet he's embraced by another people. And again, this reminds us of the Lord Jesus and his gospel that goes forth among the Gentile nations. So the daughters of Ruel then return home earlier than usual. The work of Moses to help them made their job lighter. Their father is quick to extend hospitality to him, offering him a meal of friendship, a place of acceptance and warm welcome. And we read that Moses is content to settle here and dwell with this family. And he has given one of Ruel's daughters as a wife. He has a child and names him Gershom. And the naming of his son here is significant. It means sojourner or pilgrim. And so Moses acknowledges here, Moses acknowledges in the naming of his son that he doesn't really belong here. In fact, he doesn't really belong anywhere. He doesn't belong in the household of Pharaoh. He was rejected by his own people. The land of Midian is not really his home either. He's just a sojourner here among a nomadic people. So where does Moses belong? Well, again, back to Hebrews 11, verse 26. He looks with eyes of faith to an inheritance that is to come. Moses, through faith, is looking to this heavenly home, something that is beyond this world. And isn't this the calling for all of God's people? Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, listen to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. You see, we are to learn to look with eyes of faith beyond the struggles that we encounter in this life. Because no matter how frequent or how intense the trials might be, our identity is elsewhere. We are a pilgrim people traveling through this life into the age to come. Moses did not see the Lord Jesus, but he looked with eyes of faith to Christ himself. He understood that a Redeemer was coming who was going to take him to a better land. A land that, in fact, he never had the privilege of entering. Until 1,500 years later, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw his Savior in all of his radiant glory. That which Moses had hoped for by faith later became sight. And that which we hope for by faith will one day be made sight. Well, what about you? Are you learning to live in this life with eyes of faith that look to a better land that is to come? Or are you enticed with the fleeting pleasures that sin offers? Is your focus upon making this earthly life as comfortable as you can? Are you more concerned about making this place your home than you are preparing for that which is to come? Egypt was very enticing to Moses. We need to understand that. That it had everything, humanly speaking, to offer. Power, prestige, money, comfort, pleasure. Sin, by its very nature, is always attractive. Or we would never be enticed by it. But such things are passing. Such things bring temporary enjoyment, but they are fleeting while the treasures of Christ are eternal. And so another 40 years pass in Moses' life until the Lord speaks to him in chapter 3. And so as Moses goes on to shepherd the flocks of Jethro, he goes through another 40 years of training. This time he's not trained in the wisdom of the world, but in the development of character that he will need to shepherd the people of God. And we learn something at the end of chapter 2, quite remarkable. This is our fourth point this morning. That the Lord is faithful to His covenant promises. Faithful to His covenant people. I think it's, it's, it's critical to consider verses 23 through 25 at the end of this chapter. So that we see that the focus of this text is not upon Moses. It's not really upon the people of Israel either, but it's upon God Himself and His faithfulness to redeem. The Pharaoh who wanted Moses dead is now gone, and there's a new Pharaoh. Perhaps the people of God there in slavery see this as an opportunity for the oppression that they are under to be alleviated in some way. Perhaps hopeful that circumstances will change and the burden will be lifted. Instead, Things continue to be heavy upon them. And it is in this distress that they cry out to the Lord. This is the first time that we read of them calling out to the Lord. Whether it's the first time they do so or not, we aren't sure. But they cry out to the Lord as the only one who can listen 
and the only one who can really help them. And notice the Lord's response to their cry. The Lord hears. The Lord remembers. The Lord sees. And He knows. First, the Lord hears. Well, what does it mean to say that we have a God who hears? Here's an entire generation of people who were born in slavery, who knew nothing but slavery, who can't see beyond slavery, who no doubt envisioned themselves and their children dying in slavery. It is a dark time for the children of Israel, a time of great trial and suffering, a time of struggle in which they see very little hope of ever escaping. Darkness behind, darkness ahead. Is there any hope at all? In verse 23, they groan and they cry out for help. A cry that brings about change. A cry that moves the God of His people to compassionate intervention. And what comfort this brings to us. To know that our God hears us. No matter how weak or frail our prayers might be. We have a God who always hears. And the Lord remembers what does, it see, what does it mean to say that our God remembers? Well, this doesn't mean that He forgets, for He never forgets His people. But rather, it's a remembrance of covenant promises that move Him to action. Covenant promises, in verse 24, that were made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises to redeem them and promises to lead them into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey but a land that in of itself was meant to point ahead to a greater heavenly inheritance. It's a compassionate and loving remembrance based upon the covenant promises that He made, covenant promises that He initiated. This is our comfort as well. It is by grace alone that we have been saved. It is by grace alone that we are preserved. It is by grace alone that the Lord remembers the covenant promises that He has made with us. It is by grace alone that He will carry us on to that heavenly home. Our Lord sees. What does it mean to say that He sees? In verse 11, Moses went out and he saw the oppression of his fellow Israelites but he didn't really understand the weight of oppression that was upon them because he wasn't really among them. While he identified with them, he really had yet to truly see what things were like for them in slavery. But in verse 25, God sees, and he sees in a much more adequate manner, in a much fuller way, for ultimately he himself comes down among his people and experiences the effects of darkness upon the world. He sees, he identifies, he experiences for himself. We do not worship a God who is remote and aloof, but we worship one who sees our struggles, who sees our hardships. Don't ever believe the lie that God just doesn't care. And the Lord knows In what way does he know? Someone has said that knowing that God knows is meant to make all of the difference. Knowing that he knows is meant to make all of the difference in our lives. For his knowledge is limitless. His knowledge is intimate and personal and caring. He knows each one of us better than we know ourselves. 
He knows all of our circumstances and He knows exactly what He's doing in our lives. You know how you you might go through a, a significant trial in your life. The death of a loved one. A horrible diagnosis of illness. The betrayal of one who pledged his love to you. And oftentimes someone will come to you, perhaps with the right intention, and they'll say to you, I know what you're going through. And probably the first thing that you think is, no, you don't. You don't have any idea. But we have a God who does know. We have a Savior who truly knows our struggles, for he has come down in flesh and experienced greater abandonment and greater betrayal than we will ever experience. Do you know that He knows? Do you know that His knowledge is exhaustive and good? Do you delight in His knowledge? Or do you sort of convince yourself that no one understands, not even God, and that no one can identify? Or is it reflected in your own life that you believe Him? Are you controlled by your circumstances? Or instead, are you dominated by this reality that He knows? Do you see the beauty of this very intimate and caring language? He hears. He remembers. He sees. He knows. We are never alone. We are never isolated. Do you live as though He hears? Or do you live as though He is deaf to your prayers and to your cry? Do you live as though He remembers? Or do you live as though He has forgotten you? Or is unconcerned about you? Do you have sort of a false humility? Why would God really care about me? Do you live as though He sees? That He sees into your hearts, that He sees into your circumstances, that He sees into the deep recesses of your life? Or do you live as though He cannot see into your heart, or that He just doesn't care? Do you live as though He knows that you are never alone? child of God. Knowing that He knows makes all of the difference. Now as you think about how to apply this text to your life this morning, the most important thing for you to consider is your response to God's deliverer. Really, this is the most important thing in your entire life. How are you going to respond to the one that the Lord has sent to deliver? There are really only two possible responses, faith or rejection. You will either humble yourself and acknowledge that you need His grace to save you, or in your pride you will reject Him. And the consequences of your response to this deliverer are eternal in nature. And so the calling of this text, as the calling from the entire Word of God, is to put your faith in the one, the only one, who can save you from your bondage to sin and captivity. And as your faith is put in Christ Jesus, understand that your identity is as a sojourner throughout this earthly life. This is not your home. There is something with immeasurable greatness awaiting you. So from the most severe to the minor struggles of life, all of those things will one day pass. From the most significant, abandonment, diagnosis of cancer, death of a loved one, from that to daily struggles of disappointment and conflict, 
This perspective of understanding our identity as a pilgrim people is vital for us to embrace. One day, faith will be made sight, and that will change everything. And as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, be reminded that this table reminds you of your identity. That you are a pilgrim people looking ahead to that great wedding feast of the Lamb prepared for His people. He who promised is faithful. He hears. He remembers. He sees. He knows. May the Lord our God take the eternal truths of His Word and inscribe them deep upon our hearts.